Hello, and welcome to the Review Squared. It has been a hectic, chaotic end of the semester, but I'm glad to say that we're here at the end. So much is happening. I actually, before I get into the introductions, I just want to ask the panel, hey, how are you all doing? Relieved. Relieved is the word. I agree with Alejandro. I'm doing good. Finals week is wrapping up and nothing better than that. Could not say it better myself. Finals are over. I scream, uh, and which is unbelievable because it's not even May Day. <laughs> We're recording this on the 30th, by the way. So anywho, let's get into it. I'm Gideon Karyuki. I'm John Brown. I'm Alejandro de la And have we got a show for you this week? We are missing half of the panel. Um, uh, yes, we are missing Ethan, Kirsten, and Haley this week, which is uh, very unfortunate. But hopefully they'll be all back here next week. And also, welcome to the last part of season three, where we are not even airing on Blaze Radio anymore because the semester's over. <laughs> Anyhow. On to the show. This week, uh, you know, as normal, I'm starting. So let's talk about the audit of the Maricopa County ballots that the Arizona State Senate ordered. For those of you who are not up to speed on this and are wondering, what did I just say? Let's lay down some of the background. The State Senate obtained all of the 2.1 million ballots cast in Maricopa County, which is the most populous county in the state, along with the counting machines and related data on hard drives concerning this and are conducting a recount of them specifically for president and U.S. Senate at the Veterans Memorial Coliseum in Phoenix. So all this information was then given over to Cyber Ninjas, a Florida-based company with no election experience and ran by someone who shared evidence-free conspiracy theories stating that the 2020 election was not legitimate, according to the Associated Press. So before I go on, let me just make some things clear. The county already conducted a professional hand count audit, and it matched 100% to the tabulation equipment. The election was free and fair, and that is really not in dis factual dispute. On Thursday, the 29th of April, after a lawsuit filed by the State Democratic Party and County Supervisor Steve Gallardo to start the, to stop, my apologies, the recount and a court order, Cyber Ninjas released a 191-page report detailing the procedures used in the audit, according to the Arizona Republic. This document did not answer some questions asked about the audit, like, why are UV lights being used? Yes, that was a thing they were doing on the stream, which is you can actually watch when they're doing it during the day. Also still unknown is where the funding for the audit is coming from, at least except the $150,000 given by the state Senate to Cyber Ninjas. And even more news in that category, Today, the 30th, 
a reporter for the Arizona Republic, Ryan Randazzo, was kicked out of the Coliseum after posting a photo of former state representative Anthony Kern at the audit tallying votes. Kern was at the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C., and has shared false conspiracy theories alleging that the 2020 election, presidential election was stolen. The CEO of Cyber Ninjas had previously said that there were screening workers to ensure that they did not have, quote, strong opinions one way or another, end quote. So that is not even all of it. it this seems to be a rather messy, still very much developing story at the time of recording on all fronts. So I want to ask the panel, what are your thoughts on the audit, on, on the state Senate doing this, on Randazzo getting kicked out of the state capitol, apparently, and this not even being the first time that happened, which I'll talk about in a second. But yeah, what are your thoughts, panel? I mean, just the, the allotment of resources that is going into this recount. I think it's like 2.1 million ballots, right? They're re recounting or doing the odd of. Um, just like, you know, as um, not just Arizona's economy, but the whole US economy is recovering um, from the past year. And still, obviously, the pandemic is not over, and so many things uh, need to be addressed. Out of all the things that that the state legislature, the Arizona Senate, could be pouring money into or trying to work towards making things better, we're auditing an election that happened in November, and to, by the time this episode is out, it's going to be May. It's like we know there was no stealing of the election. Joe Biden literally like has been in office for like just a little over a hundred days now. So I'm just, I'm just like a little frustrating as like an Arizonan, um, like we have so many things that need fixing and addressing and the election is definitely not one of them. And it's just frustrating because um, so many people already like look down on Arizona and they're like, oh, look what they're doing. They're recounting ballots from an election that happened a long, a little while ago. When it's like, they, I mean, a lot of problems in Arizona are shared with other states in the US, but it's like these people who are heading this audit aren't necessarily, they're not really representative of like Arizona as a whole and like the people who live here. Like, yes, there are people who live here who want an audit and they want, they think, um, their election was stolen, but it does not represent our our state as a whole. Like there's so many good things here. Um, and I just had to like get that grievance out of the way because I'm just so used to people being like, Arizona, like why would you want to go to Arizona? Um, first of all, Arizona um, is great, but yeah, just resources. Like we don't even know when the legislative session is going to be over. Um, we don't even know when this audit's going to be done. So I just feel like, how can you manage your abilities as a state legis state lawmaker and also be focused on this audit? Not say you can't multitask, but to me, like it both feel like really intense projects, jobs. Um, so to be focusing on both, just to me wonder, makes me wonder where the priorities are. Yeah, 
I I haven't looked too much into it just because I'm not in Arizona right now and I've been out of state and it's hard to keep up with Arizona news. Obviously, this is like a big national story about the audit that's happening. And I agree with what um, Alejandro has to say. I think it's going to be May when this episode, when, excuse me, when this episode is out. So I don't know. I just think like, come on, really. I feel like we're just wasting our time and our resources on this. And yeah, I don't know. I, I, everything Alejandro said, I really agree with. I, I think the frustrating thing too is like, there's like nothing we can do about it. Like there's nothing we as like people, like in Arizona, there's nothing we can be like, obviously it's a clear waste of time, but it's like, we can't do anything about it. We just have to like sit back and watch as like more and more reporters uncover like all of the foolery that's happening. Like I haven't been on Twitter in like two days, but before that it was like every day a new discovery was coming out that was like, something's happening at the Coliseum but that isn't necessary and it's just like oh my gosh like our money is going into this well we don't really know where the money's coming from like getting said or at least we don't know where 100 percent of it is coming from and it's just frustrating to watch um as like a constituent of some of these people be like really like come on man yeah no, and I think Alejandro, you make a good point there. It's like, we don't, like, there's so much that's unknown about this. And like, we didn't even know what procedures they were using to conduct this audit. Something that is standard, that is a standard, normal expected thing in an election audit is, you know, they have publicly available procedures that anyone can view and they weren't putting them out. And also, I'll come back to what you said in a second, but I, I did mention, like, this isn't the first time they've had troubles with the media. They weren't even letting the media have access last week when it started. So, like, I guess the big question is, like, what were they hiding? And what are they still hiding? Like, and I think to really... Uh, uh, I think Alejandro made a point that I really want to emphasize. Like, this is not representative of what Arizona is. Like, this is, like, okay, we've had our fair share of pointing out that, like, a, if you go back and listen to the archives of the show from the, from the past year, a lot of it is us being very, 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 very mad and disappointed at Arizona. And I do want to say, though, it I am mad and disappointed about this state a lot because I love it here. Like, it's very weird for me to say sometimes because I'm somebody, if you hear, like, a lot of people listening to this will go like, Gideon loves Arizona. Yes, I, I do. I, I, I get mad at this place because, <laughs> because I love it here. Like, it's, I mean, I hate the summers. I'll never get used to it. And I'm, I'll moan about them for the rest of my life probably. But but no, it's such a beautiful state with so many wonderful things going for it and can be so much better. And when th dumb things like, you know, a election audit, mo which is clearly and transparently motivated by sore losers. They lost. Donald Trump lost re-election. Martha McSally did lost re-election. Well, her first election, actually, because she was appointed. So... It, 
guess what? It happened. Yeah, it sucks. Not winning isn't fun. I, I've been on the losing side of a lot of things. But it's life. Come on. I think, yeah, it just speaks more to... Um, it doesn't speak to the state. It speaks more to the type of candidates that are successful here, I think. Because every state... Every state kind of has politicians that are kind of tailored to that state's needs and like are kind of perfectly fit. Um, like the ones we have right now in the center, like they do very well here, um, just as like any other politician would do well in any other place. And also, like if you look at the past couple of years, like the trends are changing in the legislature. I mean, they hadn't for so long, but like this past um, election, it was actually kind of competitive and early results or telling of how Arizona has changed um, in the past year. So people can't say that like, oh, like the legislature's always been like this. I mean, yes, it's there's been a lot of problems, but there has over the past couple of years been changes, especially when you look at voting numbers. And as um, Phoenix, Maricopa County, like gets more people and gets more diverse, you can expect um, to maybe one day like not see um, full Republican-dominated Arizona legislatures, which we've had for so long. But you know, if we look at the trends, it may not be like that um, sooner than later. Yeah. No, things are changing in Arizona. I agree. And, you know, and I do think, like, Personally, my personal kind of thoughts on like what is motivating this, apart from, you know, sore loser, obvious sore loser syndrome, like this, come on, come on. It, it, it's so obvious. But apart from people being mad they lost, there's also this kind of anger and like of like Arizona, things are changing down here politically. And it's not just the Californians. And I hear one more politician rant about the Californians. I'm going to scream. Um, I have, like, yes, I enjoy dumping on California as much as the next guy. That state has a lot of problems and a lot of the people are obnoxious. Um, but <laughs> sorry, Californians. You have a beautiful state, but it, it's got its problems. And um, but But it's like, and we'll, we'll talk in a separate episode about what, why, why I get so dr driven mad by the Californians claim. But it's like, it's not even just that. It's like the state is changing. Like people who are born here are changed. Like people are changing. Some people are changing their minds. Some people are growing in into the electorate. People our age who are starting to vote. Like things are changing in the state and that happens. And this is anti, like, just completely anti, like, Arizona's going to be this, you know, you know, this solid conservative state forever. And it's not. It's not. It simply isn't anymore. Arizona's not a solid Republican state and hasn't been for a, a couple of years now. Like, it's solidly in the who knows who's going to win any election category. So, I mean, yeah, it's like. Have you seen Phoenix the past couple of years? Like, have you walked the streets? Um, yeah, it's like our, our legislature has a very particular particular brand of conflict. Um, I would say, 
like the Republicans are very much, it's very rare that they, um, it's very rare that they depart from party lines. And it's like, it's hard to watch like the combo to the Democrats and the Republican the state legislature just because it is so fierce. And um, the Democrats, it almost feels to me like a lot of times they just shout into the void um, and no one really listens. I forget who told, who said this, but I remember, I think, I think it was actually at an NAJ event and um, they had a rep from uh, the house. I forget her name. I believe first name is Jasmine. I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the name right now, but she was talking about how a lot of the Republicans in the legislature, if they see a certain bill from a Democrat, a certain Democrat, they just won't even read it. And again, I'm paraphrasing here. I think I'm, so if you're like listening to this and you like, please don't come for me like, but I think she says something along those lines that like some Senate Republicans or um, Arizona Republicans just like won't even bother with certain people just cause like they're ideologically so different. And also a lot of the Democrats and lenders on the legislature are very, very loud. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it is, certainly does not make the Republicans want to work with them more. Oh yeah, no Alejandro, you're very much correct. There are a, a quite a few names I'm already thinking of, of like very prominent uh, state level Dems who are very vocal about what they believe, very vocally, very, very vocally liberal or progressive and and, you know, and, and yeah, as you said, like, it is kind of shouting into the void. I'm not going to cite who said, who said, I was once told by a local reporter, I'm not going to name, about another local reporter who would ask something along the lines every time a Democrat introduces a bill, something along the lines of, well, you're a Democrat, how, is, how are you going to pass, get it passed? Yeah, you're a Democrat, how are you gonna get it passed? Like just a very, very blunt question. And those of you who know anything about the state press corps might be able to guess who it is correctly. So, <laughs> but yeah, it, yeah, it, it's very funny uh, that that quote, but like, yeah, as you said, like things are changing. And yeah, this entire state Senate audit is, I can pretty much say unequivocally is a disgrace. It is not going to find any fraud. If it does, I'll eat my shoe on air. How about that? You, that's my promise. All of you listening to the Review Squared, if any fraud is found in that election audit that is verified by people who aren't crazy or something, I will eat my shoe on air. How about that? That is how confident I am. Um, I will... I will, like, eat... I will eat, like, a whole onion... And I hate onions. If there is fraud found, I will eat a whole onion. So um, come for the content, stay for the, um, stay for getting a potentially eating issue. Yes, uh, future episode where I act literally eat my shoe, um, bo boil up a shoe. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it's not gonna happen. The, the, no fraud. This is a, a wonderfully, like you go ask any expert who knows anything about elections who is in a partisan hack, free, fair, one of the most secure we've ever had in American history. So anyways, th 
thank you all so much for that lively discussion about uh, that audit and state politics. And you'll sure be hearing more about this at some point because uh, this seems like it's gonna drag for a bit. Uh, with that, I'll hand it off to John to talk about his story. Thanks, Gideon. This story has been making the news all week, but it's been an ongoing, not like a story, it's been an ongoing discussion for many years in this business. So Pointer came out with a really good article that the News Guild study of 14 unionized Gannett newsrooms, Gannett, which is like a, um, it's a big company that owns a bunch of newspapers across the United States. Um, Anyways, the study found that 14 unionized Gannett newsrooms finds gender and racial pay gaps. The median salary for women of color was $15,000 less than the median salary for white men. That is according to Pointer. So the median salaries of women and people of color at 14 union, at these 14 Gannett newsrooms was at least $5,000 less than those of their male and white colleagues. This is the new study that found. So the median full-time salary for women in the fall 2020 was $47,000, while the median for men was $57,000. That is representing a pay gap of nearly $9,000. And journals of color earned a median salary of $48,000, or um, just above $5,000 lower than the median salary for white journalists, which is, just absolutely crazy, especially that we're in 2021 and that this is happening. And I was looking at Twitter all this week and the Arizona Republic came under fire because I think at least 20 employees from the Republic left between May 2020 and now. Um, it might be even higher, but I think it is at least 20. And me, myself, I'm not on the print track but I saw all these announcements of these really fantastic Republic reporters leaving the station. And I was like, why? This was about a month and a half ago. I was like, why are all these reporters leaving the Republic? It's known to be such a great newspaper. It's often promoted by the Cronkite School as being one of the fabulous newspaper companies. And yet we see, uh, sorry, let, let me preface this. I'm not bashing Cronkite. I'm just saying from my experience in our history of journalism class, we we had to read the Arizona Republic. Um, our former Dean Christopher Callahan talked about the Republic a lot. Former Dean Mark Lodato talked about it. And I, it had a really good reputation at the Cronkite School. And a lot of people could do an internship there, the breaking news reporting internship, which gets you in the print industry. And I just think now it's so surprising that all of this, well, it's not surprising, but it's all coming to light now. And I think it really brings the question up. I saw this on Twitter. One of their reporters, he came from Albuquerque. He, he left the Republic last month. He came from Albuquerque to his hometown back in Phoenix. And the Phoenix New Times wrote a really interesting article about this. And he was making, I think, about 8,000 less in Phoenix than he was in Albuquerque, which is absolutely ridiculous. I just think 
there are so many underpaid journalists in our industry. And to fathom that a degree in journalism can potentially be more expensive than what you'd be making when you first start out of college is, it simply should not be accepted. It's as much as a problem in the broadcast industry as it is the print industry. Simply just making, we journalists need to make a livable salary. Most journalists have to work a second job to get, to just pass by. And a lot of our journalists, especially in the newsroom, are being so overworked and underpaid. Mostly women and journalists of color are being very underpaid. And it's absolutely awful that we are still having this go on by such a big company who cares more about profits than they do their own employees' mental health and their own employees' salary. It's it's just absolutely like mind blowing. I'm repeating my words here, but it's just, it should not happen. There should be no room for it, especially at Gannett, which is a big company that owns all these newspapers across the country. So I think there needs to be a shift where we need to pay our journalists in living wages because it's 2021. The cost of like almost everything has gone up from like 20 years ago, 10 years ago. And there are still people who are making $20,000 to $30,000 when they are first starting out. And that is almost qualifying you for food stamps and federal aid, which, you know, it's, it's really sad. I, I just, I, I, don't, I don't have any other words to explain it, but I want to get your thoughts on this. First of all, um, shout out the Arizona Public Guilds. Um, they are great. They are like super unified. And I like, my heart goes out to them because um, I know Gannett is obviously not very pro-union and um, they're just, I do not like Gannett. Um, it's just like wild to me, like um, just in like the short time that I was in journalism, also PSA to listeners, I'm no longer a journalist, um, but like the amount of talent that the Republic has shed in the past couple months is just like crazy. Like you just, you get, you follow these people and you get to know them and you read their work um, and you find out just how good they are. Um, hold on, I'm gonna put in, I believe this reporter is leaving. Can someone, I'm gonna, I don't know if anyone can verify this. Um, yes. yes, he is. Yeah. Um, there's, I'm not going to say her name on the podcast. I'm not going to say anyone's names just because, um, I know this is like a super tense situation, but there is a really, really like extremely talented, um, like state house reporter leaving the Republic. She's like one of the best you won't find, like not just in Arizona, but in the country, like she is amazing. And just some other people that I've seen leave, um, that are like, amazing and I'm like there's clearly um a disconnect between the leadership um at Gannett and in that newsroom and all the talented women and um journalists of color and it's just really fr frustrating because when people when people have like it's very clear when people have a living wage when they have like insurance when they have like 
these basic needs met, like they're gonna do better at their job. They're gonna want to do better at their job because they're shown that they're cared for and they have like all these things. Um, Cause obviously, as we know, journalism is like, the job is not without trauma and so many other things that come with it. So when you have like, you know, insurance for like therapy and you're paid well, so you can like buy, um, like not just pay rent, but also buy things that you want. Like it just is able to put your mind at so much ease and you're just able to focus on your job. And unfortunately the reality is that so many journalists are not just able to focus on their job right now because the financial situation is just not the, these these um, newsrooms and these organizations are not paying their journalists enough to where they can solely focus on their job, um, which is really unfortunate. And like this state is so unique and the different beats and coverages um, that there is. Uh, so when you lose talent like that, it's like you're losing, you're losing like, a, you're, I don't know how to explain it. Like um, you're just, it's indescribable the losses that the Republic has had in my opinion. Um, when you think about all the different things and all the different people that live here in this state, um, you know, like from all of our indigenous um, people that live here to the unique political landscape, Phoenix as a growing city, like um, when you lose these people who are experts on these things, um, these people are like creating like new, new things in journalism and they're creating trust with communities that journalism has hurt. And this, I'm not like, these aren't like my original points. Like these are things I've heard over Twitter. Um, but when you lose these people who have built relationship with these communities and then they leave like that, um, not all of that work is gone, but um, it just puts a hindrance in that work with communities that journalism needs to help repair trust with. Um, and also like, what, is, what does this say to people who are in school for journalism right now? What does this say, you know, the, the biggest newsroom in your state is like not adequate for women and journalists of color? Like, what does that tell students and how does that supposed to make them feel? Like the top job, not the top job, but basically the top job um, in journalism in Arizona that you can have at the most premier publication is not working for everyone. Um, so yeah, solidarity with Arizona Public Guilds and hopefully everyone who um, is still working there and having to um, advocate for themselves to Gannett is I hope they're taking care of themselves and able to just um, push through because uh, it is not fun to work in an environment that is not welcome to everyone. Yeah, it's it's really sad because you, you make a lot of great points and I think it just brings down everyone's mental health because when you constantly go into an environment when you know you're underpaid for your service, when you have a master's degree in journalism, when you have 10 plus years of experience and you are still underpaid in the largest newspaper in Arizona and a big metropolitan city. I know in Phoenix, it's the 11th city on the market, the market number 11. That's the top 20 market and you're still getting underpaid for your services. Phoenix is just not a small town. It's one of the biggest cities in the country and it's, it, brings down everyone's mental health 
when you're just constantly belittled all the time, I'm not, I'm sure there has been multiple instances of belittlement out of the public because of people getting underpaid, not getting the correct resources, constantly getting pay cuts because of the pandemic. It's just, yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's awful. It, it's absolutely awful. <clears throat> and more stories have come out. Um, some reporters there alleging like straight up just hostile, uh, creating a hostile work environment is the best way of putting it. Uh, of, yeah, and yeah, and we're just not gonna get into the names because uh, at least a lot of us are like one or two people removed away from them. So it's kind of, kind of difficult. Um, but so anyhow, yeah, and Gannett's response to this has been horrible. So the, of course, this News Guild survey that they did with the information, and the only reason how the News Guild, which is, I should know, for those of you who aren't familiar, the News Guild is the, uh, un, is the uh, national union for most newspaper, unionized newspapers. And the Republic actually being one of them, the Republic voted to unionize way back in 2019. <laughs> they still don't have a contract. Uh, <laughs> They should probably have a contract, uh, uh, Gannett, if you're listening. Uh, but so anyhow, they get, because of the labor laws in this country, they actually the, they actually have to release this data to News Guild, like uh, in their unionized uh, newsrooms. They have to release these, this data of like how much people are getting paid. And Gannett's response to this entire study, by the way, this is the information they have from the newsrooms that are, Gannett newsrooms that are in the News Guild. Their response was, this is a misinformation campaign. They wrote out a tweet. Actually, you know what? I'm going to read the tweet verbatim because it's literally that bad. It, uh, yes, if I'm reading something out verbatim on this show, it is that bad. It's a whole thread and we're not going to, I'm not going to read all of it and it includes a long statement, but just the start to this thread is at Gannett issued a response to at News Guild and their misinformation campaign concerning the study of four out of our 250 plus newsrooms. We address the facts that were not disclosed. Gannett's on a journey. We have been transparent about our goals. Hashtag facts. Okay, for those of you listening at home, a newspaper company accused their, their employees, who are journalists, of doing fake news. Like it was Gannett journalists doing this, by the way. So, very cool. <laughs> very cool, very normal. Uh, no, it's a bad, it's bad, it's so bad. The, the, the journalism industry destroys people. And that's not the path I'm going currently, but it's depressing to see because a lot of my friends are, a lot of the folks on this panel are. And it's it's just so depressing to see like an, an, an industry crush its own. It's, it's some of the biggest, brightest talents just walk out just to say like, you know, I, 
I'm leaving. And it seems like if Gannett's strategy is to destroy the Republic and sell it for scrap, well, they're well on their, they're, they're really starting this journey with real hard and they're, and they might actually be able to pull it off sooner than later because the brain drain that's happening there, like there's plenty of wonderful journalists left at the Republic, but they're losing a lot and at a rapid pace. Yeah, no, you make really good points. And I, I really liked what you said about, it's really important to touch on that journalism destroys so many people. One, because it's, it's hard to get into. And two, because most people just cannot afford to stay in the business. You're always overworked. You have to get a second job. And some people it just, they learn that it's not for them. And I think, I know for me, like luckily I'm super privileged to have the opportunity to go into journalism and to have um, financial help while also working and maintaining like a, a job like in college. But some people don't have that and you have to really feel for them because this career can really drive someone's mental health down the drain often force them not to pursue these dreams so yeah Gideon I really agree with you I just there definitely needs to be more change yeah and journalism especially and because this the primary issue at hand let's not forget the primary issue at hand is that they they have evidence here of pay disparities on the lines of race and gender which is unacceptable wholly unacceptable just absolutely and when and at the actually of the in that study by the way the newsroom with the worst disparities was the republic so like that is wholly unacceptable just like there's no excuse for it like and i should note like there were even some former reporters at the actually one former reporter at the republic was saying about that she got the same job as another reporter and out of college and she was making like ten thousand dollars more despite being wildly inexperienced in comparison to the other reporter who had her job previously so yikes and yeah it it, it's just not good it's not good it's horrible it's sickening and Gannett needs to get its act together and not go around. Hear me out when this country has a huge problem at the moment with very wildly low trust in, in the media. And not to say that it's whole, I'm not going to go as far as saying, you know, like the media has done nothing wrong. The mistrust is wholly unearned, but it's a little more complicated than uh, the, the media did stuff. Uh, We've discussed this before, and I could go into more details on another time. But, however, these are reporters who are doing their level best through some really rough conditions. Like, they don't make that much. They simply don't make that much. You don't know, like, anyone who thinks you go into journalism to get rich uh, is probably, like, please, I I beg you. I'm friends with a lot of journalists. Please just go. Yeah, go into a room and tell them that like that will just get you depth stared at on a good day I, I just I don't know like how like it gets to people's heads to like I don't I don't know how you think of just like 
underpaying someone with a master's degree and 10 plus years of experience and seeing people who are struggling to make a living and being constantly overworked. And a lot of people think that journalists are rich people and that is very few people, like pretty slim. And some people are lucky to have, if in desperate need, they can have financial help but a lot of people are not in that situation. And I know for me, if I was to ever be in some sort of situation being severely underpaid as all journalists are, I would have the privilege of having a little financial help if I actually needed it. But again, as I said, that's not the case for everyone, which again, which is why I'm advocating for so much change as well as every other journalist in this working professional industry. So, yeah. I just uh, wanted to cap that off saying, yeah, most people in the journalism industry are not wealthy. And unfortunately the wealthiest people are like some of the worst people. Uh, Agreed. Agreed. They all have sub stacks that are terrible and you shouldn't subscribe to them. Yes, we're not at all we're not at all subtweeting a specific uh, person who's uh, very famous for something to do with uh, Brazil. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, good conversation. I will end it off on that, and I will send it off to Alejandro. Thank you, John. So I wanted to kind of take it back, but I haven't talked about like movies are a movie um, in like over a year on the show. And I also, my new major is filmmaking practices. Um, so why not talk about a film that I watched yesterday, which is the 2021 version of Mortal Kombat, which is based off the video game. Um, and I just, I, I, um, I don't know, there's like a certain comfort that like big blockbuster movies bring me. Um, and I really enjoyed this one. It's not amazing, um, but it was cohesive. Um, it looked expensive, which I appreciated because nowadays there's like a lot of big budget movies that have terrible CGI and I'll never understand that. Like these movies that have hundreds of million dollars in budget with terrible CGI. And I'm like, you had all this money and you like someone, someone like in college could like make a better like special effects than you. So I appreciated that it looked very expensive and that's all of like, well, I mean, if you know Mortal Kombat, it's extremely violent. Um, and I appreciated that like it actually like looked good. And all of like the characters, like abilities and powers were actually like, um, like the reflections of the light um, and the CGI, like the team that worked on it. It's very, uh, very impressive. But I, I'm talking about this movie. I'm actually, this conversation isn't about the movie. It's, it's good, it's not amazing. Um, it, the script is kind of meh. The acting is like kind of weak at points, but it's a fun movie. But I, this goes on to say, um, it had me thinking about like what projects that Hollywood like funnel, funnels money into. Like we know that these movies like Mortal Kombat, Avengers, um, other like Fast and Furious, we know these movies make billions of dollars, if not billions of dollars, hundreds of millions and they bring returns to these studios, which create sequels and spinoffs and all of that. And I love these movies as much as anyone else. But unfortunately, the more movies like this that are being made, the more independent films that don't get funding, 
And the ones that do, they get put in theaters, they kind of get put aside. Um, like I remember when Avengers Endgame came out, I think uh, I was reading an article and just in general, when you looked at movie theater times, most, like the majority of the theater was playing Avengers Endgame and like very other few theaters got actual show times. So when independent theaters are put into uh, get like screenings, unfortunately, like if they come out on the weekend of a film like Mortal Kombat or um, Fast and Furious, they maybe get like two or three screenings compared to those movies getting like 40 screens. Um, and I love these big budget movies again. I, they bring me comfort and they're just like kind of dumb fun a lot of the time. But I would, these movies, in my opinion, aren't necessarily like breaking new ground and they're not really innovative. Um, and as studios become more interested in making these, it kind of leaves like the art of filmmaking like in the dust. Um, not to say these aren't real films, but there are a lot of small indie filmmakers or just filmmakers who have like ideas that will actually progress film forward who don't get the money uh, or don't get all of the push from studios um, to become something more than just like two or three screens at a movie theater. Uh, it just had me wondering like how, um, it just made me kind of like sad uh, because there's so many people who have great ideas, um, but unfortunately studios are not, don't see these things as financially viable, which kind of led me to think, uh, you know, to me, a film like, in order to be successful, it doesn't really need to make a billion dollars. But unfortunately, like Marvel's making like four films a year and they all make like $10 billion collectively. So why would any other studio see a reason to make something that's going to make less? Um, so I just, in general, I want, wish there was like a de-emphasis on money making because in general, like most films will make their money back and they will be um, successful and make a profit. They just don't need to make a billion dollars and they don't need to like have like a $800 million budget with lasers and robots. Um, so I just, um, if y'all had any thoughts on that, um, uh, yeah. It's... It's not like directly, it's still related, but it's not directly related to what you just talked about, but big companies. So let me just preface this, that so many actors and actresses and filmmakers are struggling, especially now with the pandemic. And recently the Hype House, which is really big on TikTok, they just got signed with Netflix for a reality series. And Wait, excuse me? Yeah, they, get, they just got signed with Netflix. When I, there's so much outrage over this reality show, which they're, I just don't understand the logic behind Netflix signing these TikTokers. And if you think about it, their audience base of which, like of the people who, because I, I don't know anything about the Hype House. I just know. I found out about them after all this Netflix controversy. Their main audience are younger kids. And I don't know what Netflix is doing by signing them on here. I don't know what it's going to get them, but their stock has gone down. I saw. Um, so I think it drives away from so many actors, 
actresses, filmmakers, just people trying to get into the industry were working, going to universities, constantly practicing to make these films and they can't even get picked up by like Netflix, Hulu, can't even get shown. But we have The Hype House, which is getting shown on Netflix, which I personally don't understand. Maybe some people do, maybe like a small portion, but I don't. And they took off The Office, they took off Gossip Girl. Um, those are like the two biggest shows on Netflix that people actually watched. Um, that I'm not wrong on. I'm pretty sure people watched those two shows a ton. So it just speaks on independent films and small films are already downplayed on so much. But when you're bringing on shows like the D'Amelio's on like Hulu or the Hype House that's signing on to Netflix, I it just spins like a new reality. And it goes back to the Kardashians too, because in like, what, why are we like airing this? There's nothing of interest to them besides, I get it, it's reality TV, but when you're streaming this on multiple platforms, I just, I don't get it. You're not adding anything. And there's so many professional um, filmmakers, actors, actresses who are trying to make it to this industry so it's not directly related to what you're saying but it is somewhat like related if that makes sense yeah no i think you make a good point like there's like a set roster of people who work in hollywood and consistently work and like most movies are like star those people um and it's like the same people are getting the same jobs and it's like there needs to be room for new people to get those jobs and to create a name for themselves. And to me, like the whole thing is about like the emphasis on which, what type of content a studio or the industry prioritizes. Like, obviously like this hype house thing, like these people have huge followings on TikTok and it's not gonna be successful. In my opinion, that series is not gonna be successful because of the audience watching it, but because so many people are gonna hate watch it. And then it's gonna skyrocket because like, there's that new thing on Netflix where you can see the top 10 like movies or TV shows of that week. And I guarantee you that Hype House Netflix show is gonna be number one like the weekend that it comes out because people are just gonna hate watch it. And then those numbers get Netflix incentive to be like, oh, we can give them a season two because then season two is gonna come out people are gonna hate watch it again. So like all these pro projects, in my opinion, that aren't worth getting green light or being putting money behind, keep getting, um, spotlight because people will hate watch it. Um, I remember seeing like there's like this really popular show on Netflix called Ginny and Georgia that I did not watch but there's like a really cringy clip that went viral of two characters of color saying really offensive things towards each other and then talking about oppression Olympics and unfortunately it's huge because people started watching it because it was terribly written and was not good. Um, a lot of people felt like that uh, so I just think like people at the top, um, like the head of Netflix, Hulu, um, and all these other studios need to, in their mind, like really just um, kind of have like a fundamental change in what content they value. And unfortunately, like what's hot and what can be produced fast and who has the biggest name is what's selling. And not even just that, but bad content is making studios money they they now there's value in bad content yeah there's 
there's just such a dark side to Hollywood that just goes beyond what you're saying. And a lot of it has to play with in politics, if I'm being completely honest. A lot of people say Hollywood is some super fancy magical place that everyone should go to. And I mean, yes, if you're like a tourist, but there's like so much, so many dark sides to the, sorry, let me preface this, the Hollywood film industry. It's, I don't know, there's just, there's a misconception about it. I feel like personally, I've never dealt with the Hollywood film industry. And I think it especially gets tricky when it comes to political lines, but that's just, that's why I always think it's funny when like politicians are like the Hollywood liberals, like Hollywood is run by liberals. I'm like, they're not you, liberal. I feel like have you seen, they're not liberal. They're secretly no, they're like, like most of them are conservative. Like, have you seen some of the people that run the industry? Like, some of like a lot of them are really really bad people, and they are not like Hollywood like liberals. Like, it's just always that. I just want to say like it's always laugh when politicians say that. I'm like, have you seen how the industry is actually run? Because yeah, it's some of the most like famous people are like literally disgraced at the moment. Like you know, yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> and now like, I think y'all have said most of it. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of money to be made in trash, and you know, part of me is like, and Alejandro and I have had a lot of conversations about trashy TV. Like there is. I can tell you, like, it's not even, no, for me, like, it, I wouldn't go as far as to call it hate watching. Like, I don't know, not, not hate watching, but necessarily, it's like, you know, this is horrible. Like, there's so many things wrong with it. I, it's not really a hate watching thing for me. It's like, there's so much wrong with it, but there's just enough right with it that it's like, you know what, this is very watchable, but it's like, what the hell's wrong with everyone that wrote this? Like, yeah. yeah. It's all very fun, and yeah, no, it, it's really unfortunate that a lot of really great stuff gets crowded out by the, like, yes, I love a pop, popcorn blockbuster as much as the next guy, but it's like, there's so many cool things that we don't get to see because, uh, you know, because sometimes they just take all the air out of the room. Agreed. I, I wanted to end this segment with some recommendations of some smaller independent movies that people can watch. Um, just, um, j- I mean, yeah, so they can watch these movies and see like the potential um, that these stories have. So my first one is Buddies. It's a movie from 1985. I watched, I think I watched it like two winters ago. It's a movie uh, um, about the AIDS crisis um, and a man named David, he's like a graduate student and he volunteers to be a buddy to a man living with AIDS um, in a hospital. And basically it was like, I don't, it was a program where people could go and volunteer and um, spend time with people. Cause unfortunately at the time, like a lot of hosts or actually let me not speak on the facts. I don't have all the facts on that era, but unfortunately a lot of people of those AIDS patients, I know I can say this, were just not cared for um, by a lot of people. So those people would um, come and volunteer to be their buddy and give them company. It's just a really um, beautiful film about these two people and just reflecting on that era and their lives. And it just seems 
it seemed obviously I was not around in that era, but it seemed like it was a very really realistic situation for what could have been. And it just showed kind of how dire um, those patients were and how uncared for they were. But it just gave kind of like a, a very like, um, a very nice portrait of a friendship that formed out of a horrible, horrible crisis. Um, and it's nice to see that because they could have, there's so many obviously trauma films. So it was nice to see something that was um, rooted um, in a situation that wasn't good, but showed that there was points in that era that were good and good people. Um, another is Columbus, which is a 2017 film um, directed by Kogo and it's about um, this young woman who is in, still in her hometown of Columbus, Ohio. And she's basically afraid to leave because um, her mother previously had a drug addiction and they had issues in their relationship and she doesn't wanna leave her. Although her mother is recovered now, she doesn't worry that if she goes that her mother won't be able to take care of herself. And her dream is um, to be an architect. And she meets um, another character. Um, his dad is in the hospital. He has to come back home. And his dad is a famous architect. And they become friends. And um, they're able to help each other grow in their personal relationships. And I really love this film because there is a large age gap between the young woman. She's like 22, 23. And um, the man is probably like in his 30s or 40s. But um, I thought it was going to be like a romantic relationship at first. But it's actually just like a really nice friendship, which is really nice to see because unfortunately, like there is a lot of really gross and predatory like age gaps in movies and um, just in general. So it was nice to see just like a movie about friendship because we see a lot of movies that focus on romance, but it was, I don't think we have like enough stories about like friendship. So those are two movies I want uh, our audience to see, Columbus and uh, Buddies, which I believe are on Canopy which is um, a movie streaming service for like independent movies. And uh, usually if you just have like a library card that works as your login, a lot of libraries carry Canopy, including Phoenix Public Library. So most of our Arizona uh, listeners are from Arizona. So you can find it on there, just enter in your, um, your library card information. So yeah, that's the end of my segment. I'll close out the show. Thank you everyone uh, for listening. It has been a pleasure. Uh, it's been a long semester. It's been a long year, but we made it. We thank those of you who have stuck around um, because we have a small but dedicated audience. So we appreciate all of you and we hope um, we're going to have some episodes over the summer, but just in general, we hope everyone uh, has a good and restful summer. This has been Garby Square. The song at the start of the episode is dedicated to the press by Betty Davis, and the music you hear is by Springtide.